This is the Education Gadfly Show. Yeah, I don't have a lot to add to that's that. The, look, well that's done. the overmatch, well right? Is that <laughs> Where course, is the real Mike Petrilli? What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me in welcoming our special guest for this week, Lindsay Burke. Lindsay, welcome back to the show. Hello, thanks for having me back. Lindsay is the director at the Center for Education Policy and the Will Skillman Fellow in Education at the Heritage Foundation. Great to have you on. Also joining us, looking a little bit like a turtle in his uh, winter hat over here and uh, still feeling sick, David Griffith. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. All right, don't get us sick, David. I I, uh, I will try not to. Uh-huh. Have you guys ever played the board game Pandemic? Uh, <laughs> God, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> it's great. It's great. You're the really? CDC. Yeah, you're fighting global oh. global disease. Cool. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Hey, we got lots to talk about, Lindsay. Uh, we're we're going to talk about school choice. And hey, we might as well talk about that union strike out in Los Angeles, too. Let's do it on Ed Reform Update. All right. Well, first of all, Lindsay, uh, you know, you you cover school choice is probably your your top beat, right? Yeah. Uh, and so I'm kind of curious with the new year, if you are seeing anything that makes you optimistic, because yeah. I admit I see a lot that makes me pessimistic. I know. Uh, well, doesn't it feel like there are some real headwinds out there? As- like you're pessimistic because you're looking too much at the federal level. So if we look to the state. Hey, I'm not looking federal. No, I mean, look, I, I mean, look, I, I, we, we, I, we agree. Okay, we agree. The we feds do. aren't going to do anything. All right. But at the state level, too, I, I don't know. I'm worried, Lindsay, yeah. that, uh, you know, clear, clearly there was some some shift uh, leftward in the last election, yeah. and that generally is not good for school choice issues. Yeah. I am worried, certainly just uh, about the left in general right now, that uh, people are getting behind the, the teachers union in LA, which is, of course, bashing charter schools. Um, you know, we've got the presidential candidates in the Democratic Party you know, seeming to move further left on this issue. So tell us, what yeah. should we look at to make us feel yeah. better? I mean, look, the good thing is more and more families, thanks to the um, school choice movement over the past yeah. two decades, directly experienced choice, whether it's through charters or vouchers yep. or ESAs or whatever it might be. And so even if we see, you know, the sort of political folks, mm-hmm. you know, uh, really coming out and doing what they always do with special interest groups to push back on choice, families are experiencing it directly. And so it's something that I'm incredibly optimistic about that that they know the benefits directly. And, you know, if we look at the states, yes, we did see some shift Mm -hmm. at the state level, whether it is governors, uh, offices, or legislatures, but there are states there right now that Mm -hmm. I think we have a really good chance in this year. So Mm -hmm. I'll just name two. Yeah, let's talk about South Carolina and Mm -hmm. West Virginia, I think are two states that we should be incredibly optimistic about. Um, Both, I think, are really giving some serious consideration Mm -hmm. to education savings accounts, Mm -hmm. which, as you know, is Mm -hmm. really what gets me excited um, working on school choice. So those are the two that I've really got my eye on. Um, You know, Texas every year, I say. (laughs) Maybe they'll get it done. but It's uh, Lucy with the football every year in Texas. Unfortunately. So, but hey, I'm still optimistic. Um, You know, still have our eye on Texas. So we'll see. And, you know, West Virginia, of course, uh, one of the few states without a charter school law still. So it'll be interesting. Is is that, I mean, that's getting pushed also. Yeah, We'll see if either of these can get across the finish line. Of course, West Virginia and South Carolina, Lindsay, you know, together they have like 100 kids. (laughs) No, it's more than that. I'm kidding. People in West Virginia and South Carolina. <laughs> These are not our biggest states. Uh, but hey, I guess we'll take what we can get. That's absolutely right. 
All right. I, I mean, David, why, why, why is your political tribe beating up on school choice? Is it, I mean, is it the Betsy DeVos thing? Is that still a, a huge issue? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's no single factor. I, I, I'm uncomfortable speaking for the left and I'm not sure that I can anymore, to be honest. <laughs> David, but that's why you're on the show. I, 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 I mean, actually, I'm also optimistic. I mean, we could all argue all day about the appropriate pace for change. But mm. one, one of the points that I always make when I'm trying to win over my fellow Democrats on the issue of school mm. choice more broadly is that it's actually been a very gradual transition, right? Charters mm. have been around for 25 years and they represent 7% or whatever of yep. the U.S. education market. I'm not sure what the comparable numbers are for yeah. uh, for vouchers, but I'm sure they're even smaller yeah. and more gradual. Yep. And, you know, the, the, the Affordable Care Act, for example, reorganized about a fifth of America's economy overnight. And I don't want to get into pros and yep. cons of it, but you know, the point I'm, I guess my point is um, there's worse things than gradual change and mm. laboratories of democracy. And uh, you know, there, I, it, it is just a given that the, the school choice movement is going to go through periods of rapid growth and periods of slower growth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not the end of the world. Right, so Right. And, and we hope not retrenchment because yeah. as you say, those parents now have had choice. They, yeah are not going to take kindly yeah. to taking their, their voucher away or their charter school away. All right, let, but, but let's segue. I'm, I'm skeptical of retrenchment, too. No, no, I, I just, no, I, I don't think, think right. it can happen. Yeah. Yeah. I think and it's I, impossible. I think the general think trend is toward yeah. more right. universal right. options, at least that's yeah. aspirationally. That is right. Yeah. That is right. Um, and, you know, so, there's been a few cases through the through courts, but, but otherwise. Right, but let's do the segue here. So then why does the LA Teachers Union find charter schools to be such a threat, a mortal foe, uh, to the extent that, you know, it's a huge part of why they're striking in Los Angeles. So much so that on the second day, they went and marched outside the offices of the California Charter Schools Association. Uh, You know, to me, it feels like they are unfairly scapegoating charter schools. That of course. You, uh, now, you may will not agree with this next statement I'm yeah. going to make, Lindsay, which is that I think you can argue that California spends too little on its schools. I mean, it certainly spends a lot less than the East Coast states. And so given that there's high cost of living and, and given that it does have this very powerful economy, you could make the case that California should be spending more on all of its schools. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that the LA teachers are right that there's some real underfunding issues. But to then blame it on the charter schools is nuts. Look, so we could argue about the appropriate level of spending, whether yep. they're spending too much or too little. But what we do know is they are not spending it in ways that actually make it to the classroom. Right. So, I mean, right. if you look at Ben Scafidi's work for EdChoice, I mean, they had, I think, a 24% increase in student enrollment since 92, I want to say. Yeah. And their non-teaching staff yeah. increased by 48%. And yep. so, yep. you know, if they had, he makes the argument, if they had simply kept their non-teaching increases mm-hmm. at the same level of student enrollment increases, they could have saved $3 billion. And, you know, yes, that's a drop in the bucket when you think about their unfunded pension liabilities, which are about $107 billion right now. But nonetheless... They could be spending their money a lot better. Yeah, yeah. And, and and I think it was a billion dollars. Chad Alderman found that they're spending on retiree yeah. health care. I mean, yeah. nobody does this anymore. It says you retire at fifty five, you get free <laughs> health care until you're sixty five for you and your family, right. and some subsidies yeah. after that, yeah. even once you're on Medicare. I mean, what is that? I, look, I, I mean, look. If if you want to provide some benefit to retirees, that say so, you don't have to go out on the Obamacare markets and get it yourself. You can get it through us, but you got to pay for it. Yeah, I yeah. mean, come on. This is, I mean, that how that possibly can be said to benefit yeah. uh, benefit kids in classrooms is no way. So, no, I, I agree about yeah. that, Lindsay. I mean, it, you know, it, it's different from the red for ed stuff in, in some of these other states because in those states, the teachers were basically striking against the state legislature. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They were saying, 
we want you to spend more on our schools. And again, I think in a place like Oklahoma, they, they have a pretty strong case to make. And, and I would be okay if the teachers in LA were saying our beef is with uh, the state of California, but instead, you know, they're doing this other scapegoating. It just doesn't feel right. Oh, and by the way, as Darrell Bradford pointed out today in uh, 74, there are working families and low-income families out there. What, what are they doing when their kids are going to be right. away from school? That's People right. People are going to lose jobs yeah. because they can't, yeah. you know, get childcare for the workers. What about that, David? Yeah, I have very little pushback <laughs> on any of that, to be honest. Uh, I think it's really... I, I, it always makes me feel conflicted, right, when we talk about higher higher funding, because yeah. like I, I I very much want you know schools to be robustly funded, yep. uh, uh, but at the same time, uh, <laughs> at some point, uh, you, we also need that money to be spent better. So, what do you do when you hear that mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> that the typical LA classroom can have up to forty kids in it? That's obviously too many. Yeah, but to your point, does it really have to be that high? Um, so I, I, I don't have the answer yeah. there. I, I think I'm not going to really defend the LA Teachers Union. They're not my favorite. Teachers Union isn't my favorite union, and the LA Teachers Union yeah. isn't my favorite teachers union. And, and uh, on top of that, look, you, you hear all this, you know, if you if you read Mike Antonucci's reporting, you say the, the head of the union, Alex Caputo-Pearl, you know, he's trying to rally the troops in the same way that Karen Lewis did in Chicago. You know, he's trying to, uh, look, this is a time after Janice and everything else, demonstrate the union's importance and you know, uh, it feels a lot like Donald Trump trying to rally his base right now, uh, you know, with shutting down the government. And in both cases, real people are getting hurt. And you're, it's not clear how it's going to end, you know, I, you know, with the wall, who knows how it's going to end. And with the union, look, the district does not have money uh, to agree to these uh, demands. And, you know, they're not dumb enough to come right out and say they're not going to support charter schools anymore. So what happens? Yeah. And look, David just mentioned the fact that they've got whatever, 40 plus kids in a classroom. We fix all these problems by just taking that $3 billion California could have saved, given 370,000 plus kids an ESA of $8,000 and win-win for everybody involved. So, you know, I will argue until the cows come home that the best possible thing we could be doing is funding the kid instead of these physical school buildings. Yeah. All right. Well, we don't totally agree on that. I mean, I, I, I support school choice lids is not the panacea and and i did try to i was trying to poke david into finally i did disagreeing with me on something I'm very there, difficult with, to poke. with the donald trump analogy <laughs> very difficult some to people poke. think that yeah. goes a little bit a too hard far. pass on that one Mike. all right, <laughs> all right. Whew. well we'll see i i have a feeling that we'll have a chance to keep talking about this union strike it, it could go on we don't know what people are saying i mean yeah is this gonna go on for weeks it is going to have a real bad impact on kids out there. All right. That is all the time we've got for this week, though, uh, with Lindsay. Lindsay, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I hope you will come back soon. It is now time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. All right. What do you have for us this week? Well, no no banter. I'm uh, feeling I'm like y'all bantered out. Uh, it's catching. All right. Anyway, uh, it's no, I will say, let, let, let me say this. I, I was about to say my like, how is your holidays? Although did, did we, we've had a show since the holidays. Uh, yeah, right. Did we have one? I did. And then my next thought, it was a sad thought, was that, uh, you know, my holidays were were not so great this year because my mom passed away. And it is sad to think she used to listen to the podcast every week. So we do have one less listener. Unless she's up there. Do do they get podcasts in heaven? Why wouldn't they? Well, you're right. It's the perfect uh, place. All right, mom. Hope you're still listening. (laughs) All right. right. What do you have? All right. We have a new study in Educational Evaluation and Policy Analysis, or EEPA journal, uh, that built upon the 
this work by Carolyn Hoxby about um, improving the match between underserved kids and their choice of college. It's actually a pretty cool study. Um, they use uh, exploit rather Texas's automatic admissions policy. Mm-hmm. So for our listeners who don't know that grants automatic admission to all public universities in the state to all kids who achieve the top 10% in class rank within their high school during their junior year. Okay, mm-hmm. it's been around a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the sole admissions criteria. So although all students are still required to fill out the college application, they still have to take the SAT. Again, they're admitted regardless of their scores on the SAT, regardless mm-hmm. of the caliber of their high school, and regardless of the courses they took. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, analysts estimate the differences in the effects of this admissions offer on both low and high income students, specifically whether knowing that you're automatically admitted to any public university in Texas fosters less undermatch or more overmatch, mm-hmm. meaning that students enroll in institutions where the average SAT score is lower than or alternatively higher than their own. Okay. Uh, they also look into whether non-academic factors play a role in the choice of college, like location, proximity, whether students prefer colleges with their same race peers or students from their same high school. Uh, they run a number of sophisticated models that control for loads of variables. But one thing that I did want to mention that's important is that they must acknowledge that low-income students are likely more responsive to college costs than high-income kids, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but they're essentially comparing the effect of perfect admissions information across the income groups. So they don't need to assume that students have the the same ability to pay. Okay, hope that makes sense. Uh, That said, the range in in Texas for public universities is fairly narrow, in part because they have this common application system, which I assume like makes them a little bit more competitive on the price. Mm -hmm. Um, And analysts are able to demonstrate after the fact that students on average do not change their matching behavior after they receive their financial aid offers. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that helps helps bolster their their case there. All right, three key findings. They're they're sort of nuanced. So so you. Consider yourself warned, okay? Mm, nuance. Number one, the automatic admissions policy reduced undermatch among low-income, high-achieving kids, mm-hmm. inducing them to apply to and enroll in more academically challenging state universities. Grace. They did not find a similar effect on high-income, high-achieving students, mm-hmm. which suggests that the information narrowed the income-related uh, gaps mm-hmm. in college quality among highly qualified applicants. Number two, however, regardless of this automatic admissions offer, high-income students with low SAT scores are more likely to overmatch than their low-income academic peers. So you got your wealthier kid, you got a low SAT, you're still likely to overmatch, okay? Um, So the admissions offer appears to improve the quality of colleges applied to and attended for low-income students only Mm -hmm. if their observable qualifications, a.k.a. SAT scores, are also Mm well-matched. The admissions offer alone was not enough to change their application behavior. Uh, The analysts say they appear to follow the signals from their SAT even when those scores don't count. Number three, last one. Finally, results show that most students prefer campuses with students who are like them, both demographically and who have similar socioeconomic status, mm. including prior enrollment kids with, you know, who also went there from their from their school, they were able to track that how many of their peers went to the same college. Uh, that said, only highly qualified low-income students will choose universities where they have fewer same race and same income peers. Mm-hmm. Whew. Was that nuanced? Okay. Yeah, I was with you until like the last three and four. Can we go back to three a little bit? Helping me understand. Three, the, they have the, if they have a low, high income students with low SAT scores okay. are still likely to overmatch. 
So they're going to mm-hmm. they're going to have that co- reach, well they call it reach college, right? Where okay. you know, they're mm-hmm. still likely to do that. And so the low income students, if they have a, a low SAT scores, they're still they're not likely to sort of go to that reach school because they're still sort of using that SAT score, I assume, to kind of size themselves up. Um even though the SAT scores don't count. Hmm. So, okay. I'm, not, I'm not sure why. Yeah. Interesting. Well, no, it, look, this is this is interesting, and, and there is a lot to like about the Texas model. Uh, now, <laughs> we have recently published some research on grade inflation, and so yes. there's also reasons to be concerned about putting so much weight on uh, class rank and grade point average, mm-hmm. and you wonder what weird things could be happening in Texas high schools. You know, for example, this notion that the the, cha- the, the type of course doesn't matter, you know, so does that right. encourage kids that are sort of on the bubble to choose easier courses, courses. than maybe they otherwise would or, you know, what, mm-hmm. what other games are being played here? You know, it, this, this helps kids who do well in grades, but maybe don't uh, do as well on test scores. You mm-hmm. can imagine, you know, b- b- you know, kids all across the socioeconomic spectrum, there are kids like that. I mean, right. of course, there's affluent, uh, you can imagine affluent families hating this on the one hand, uh, mm-hmm. because in their fancy high schools, only 10% of kids uh, might have this shot. On the other hand, there are probably affluent parents who love this because their own kids don't do well on the SAT, but they believe they are geniuses nonetheless. It's <laughs> right. uh, anyway. a nuanced take, Mike, <laughs> that's on a nuanced Yeah, timing. I don't have yeah. a lot to add to that's that, the, Mike. Look, well that's done. the overmatch, well right? Is that, <laughs> Where of course, is the real Mike Petrilli? The, the affluent kids, are, parents probably went to college, right? right? And they aspire for their kids to go to UT Austin if they can right. and, you know, think they'll do fine once they get there. Once they get there. Uh, and they probably will do fine. Fine. Yeah. All right. So I guess the, the question I'm getting to is, you know, do the pros outweigh should the cons? other states be doing the top 10% plan? I mean, it's interesting. Right. It's been around Texas a long time now. Long time. And by it, the way, there's diversity and all the rest. Why hasn't it spread? They're going to lower it, by the way, to the top 7%, I think, because <laughs> they don't have enough spots. Right. Yeah. They don't have enough spots. Yeah. Um, and that's new, but the study was done before yeah. that. Yeah. And they want to reserve more spots for sort of. Uh, you know, the full package together. I'm guessing so, right? The out-of-state? Well, out-of-state, but also just other, you know, basically more more kids from affluent high schools that... Uh, right. I'm a cautious yes, Mike. I, yeah. yeah, we don't have time to get into it, but I, I, I think the pros outweigh the cons. Yeah, but again, it hasn't spread anywhere else, I don't think. I do not know the answer to that question for sure. Hey, people, Laboratories of Democracy <laughs> does not seem to be working on this one. It seems like there might be strong incentives or, you know, not to do it, yeah. right? If you're got a strong sort of middle-class vote that wants those spots open. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, it'll be interesting, you know, as if the uh, Supreme court further narrows what's allowable Mm -hmm. uh, around the affirmative action uh, issue, then, then maybe we will see this happen in another place. All right. Well, very interesting and way to go. Our emerging education policy scholars. Go Eeps. Actually, I don't know if it was an Eep or not. Oh, it wasn't. It was in the EEPA journal. (laughs) That's 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 named after our program. Yeah. 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 I have a cold right now. I'm still, yeah. All right. Anyway, thank you, Amber. You are welcome. All right. We'll all get well before next week. Until then, I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli, the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.